getting out of an abusive relationship early makes a huge difference. And I'm proud to say I did come in as a victim, but I am a survivor. Then I could see my mom. My mom was walking toward us. And I got excited. And I was like, there's my mom. And then he didn't stop. I'm trying to keep it together, I said. I gave in to the tears, and I hated that. It, it's not necessarily the easiest process. It's not necessarily the prettiest process, but it is the most effective process. Like, you can do this. I'm going to tell you 100% you can do this, and you're so worth it to do this. I'm sure losing any child is is a real arrow through your heart but but uh, you know she was she was great she was a, a, a friend and a family member and our daughter it feels just as good the tenth time as it did the first time uh, to have one of your citizens that you're out there protecting walk up and tell you thank you there is one thing stronger in me than fear and that's my determination This is Jen Lee, the creator and host of I Need Blue. If this is your first time joining us, we are happy you are here. If you would like to hear other stories, visit www.ineedblue.net. Please note, I Need Blue does contain stories which feature graphic content and could be triggering. Please seek help if needed. Remember, you always come first. If you follow my podcast, you know I have covered dating violence as well as domestic violence with a female survivor. Today's episode focuses on a male domestic abuse survivor. Males face certain stigmas. They're expected to be the strong male and society tells us men are not supposed to get depressed. Men don't seek help. Men don't need therapy. Men are human and deserve the same love respect, sense of security, and happiness that women deserve. But that's not always the case. And my guest today is here to share his experience. Ryan, welcome. And thank you for trusting me to share your story. Thank you, Jen. And I am looking forward to taking part here and sharing my story and helping you with this process and helping potentially other individuals who might be trapped in similar circumstances as to what I went through to find that love and care that they so deserve. Absolutely. I think your message is going to be very powerful. Can you start by telling us about how how you met? Gladly. So back during my first university where I was an undergrad enrolled in mechanical engineering, international business, I met my now ex-wife at the time. And she was best friends with one of my college best friends, chance and happenstance meeting through partying and things of that nature. And I found it, I found her very enchanting, you know, the way she could walk around the room and lighten up everybody's mood and just flit about like a a butterfly as I'm standing there as the wallflower. I, I just found that incredibly attractive and appealing. So opposites attract. Exactly. Initially, there was really only limited communication. And what happened was she had actually found me online on Facebook at the time. This is back in 2009, 2010, where it wasn't the cultural tour de force that it is now. And 
she reached out to me and started liking, commenting, talking about me. An obscene amount of attention onto my social media profile and accounts and just really trying to engage with me that way. And that's really how it transitioned away from the initial meeting where I met her as a, a friend of a friend into you know developing more communication. Long-distance relationships can be challenging. So how did you all navigate that? Circumstances would change the course of our lives where she would end up going to Hawaii for school and I ended up returning back to southeastern Pennsylvania for a different scholastic endeavor, trying to establish a regular routine of communication and utilizing Skype and other methods of communication through email, through Facebook, through texting. And, you know, she was done school in Hawaii, which was six hours behind from southeastern Pennsylvania. So that led into me being up till like two or three o'clock in the morning. And due to a lot of my circumstances, I'm somewhat normally an insomniac, but I was doing it for her. It just felt like the right thing to do. And there was a lot of goading on her part to continue that level of communication to the point where as I'm trying to attend college, I'm changing my schedule to be able to match that and work and simultaneously still achieve high marks and maintain that level of communication. Now, we already said opposites attract, but at some point, there has to be some commonality that kind of keeps the attention. So as time went on, what did you all find you had in common? Honestly, there wasn't too many things that we had in common other than like the love of food and the love of partying at the time. Uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic, to be completely frank with you, Jen, and in dealing with that battle... I've been drinking since I was a very young child. Recovering from that, her and I used to party together all the time. Then we'd go out for a nice binge on eating food like pizza or some kind of fried dough or whatever you can imagine there. That lifestyle was what really kept us bound together where we would recount our stories of partying. And while we're long distance, it'd be like, oh, what'd you get into tonight? And I was like, yeah, I went on a bar crawl with like three friends. And after school, then after work, kind of thing like that, we were all drinking at, at the bar. And then for her, she's like, yeah, I was working at the the bar doing the dancing and stuff like that. Then we ended up staying after the fact. And we partied all through the night kind of thing with the random tourists and other individuals that were there in Honolulu. So it was a a very interesting way to bind ourselves together. And then what would happen after the fact was we would make plans to traverse and go see each other, basically utilize all the savings that we had from throughout our college track or coursework to go see each other. How long did your long distance relationship last until you decided to take the next step? The long distance relationship lasted approximately two, two and a half years or so until we decided to take the next step. And move in together. I had asked, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to move to Hawaii to be there with you? Or do you want to move to southeastern Pennsylvania and be in the boss wash triangle, so to speak, for jobs? She was willing to forego Hawaii and the tropical paradise. And we did end up in southeastern Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. Can you tell me what it was like with friends and family? So with friends and family, it became increasingly isolated through most of that period where I wasn't really able to communicate with them because of my demands on my time. I was only working or going to school or talking with her. I really didn't have too many other opportunities to continue to establish those relationships. And as I tried to make time for those relationships, then something has to give somewhere. 
And in doing so, when I brought up the issue of, you know, not having time to communicate with friends and family, then it was, okay, well, your friends are absolutely terrible individuals and you shouldn't be talking to them. The friend group that I had that I had forged throughout that time period where I was dealing with a lot of family issues was pretty strong and resolute. And in communicating with them, I did have quite a few different friends that would comment on my disappearance from the group or from the communications and then other actions that would be, you know, I would talk to one of my friends and they would refer to her in certain ways, like just trying to highlight the issue and saying that, you know, things don't look from our perspective, like they're going that great for you. And you seem like you're even more erratic and struggling than you normally do. I totally ignored most of those comments. You know, if you're in the throes of that kind of situation, you tend to self-isolate as well, because then, you know, you bring those conversations up with your significant other, and then they're utilized again to say like, oh, that person's not good for you kind of thing like that. They got a lot of them pushed away. When we moved in together eventually, you know, I basically had almost nobody as my support network. And there was a few family members that kept trying, but eventually they too would fall to the wayside as time progressed. Relationships have a honeymoon stage. Would you say this relationship did? Absolutely. The first, the first year after we moved in together, because the entire dating period was marked with multiple breakups and other incidences of infidelity and poor communication and just absolute heart-wrenching issues that a normal person probably would have walked away from during that dating. But with my mental stability and my mental health, I kind of just allowed that to continue to get down the path. And then once we moved in together, things felt what I would say normal. The honeymoon was definitely really there. When was the first time you questioned, hmm, maybe something's not right here? It would be we, when we took a road trip together for her to go to a graduate level coursework program. And she's talking about an event during her childhood at the time. This had never been brought up before, where as a teenager, she had burned down an abandoned house in the, the city that she grew up in and took a lot of solace in the fact that there might have been some homeless individuals living in the house that when she burned it down. I'm driving the car at this moment and I don't really know how to react to that information. I'm kind of staring incredulously over my shoulder at her and wondering why why are you taking happiness in that? Why is that something that's funny to you? Like she's laughing about this. And I'm, I'm just thinking about the individuals that could have been in that house that could have lost their lives. And I'm just like, wow, that's a, that's incredibly horrifying to me. You know, that, that gave me a, a big moment of pause there, but growing up in the environment that I did, you hear about death and shooting a lot. And I, I witnessed a lot of death and drug overdoses and I was, I was somewhat of a constant in my background as well. So I, I, I kind of was able to look past it eventually, but that was one of those moments that gave me a great sense of pause as well. I bet you probably looked at her like, who are you? Yeah, I, that was absolutely the case. So I want to ask you if you're comfortable talking about this. I am finding that as I talk to more people and whatnot, it seems like the root of trauma situations like you stem from our childhood, from trauma that we witnessed or that was done to us that's left untreated or 
I guess as a word you sometimes use, it just was normal. Like you said, the drug use, um, the alcohol, the killing, things like that. Can you talk about what a little bit more of what you saw growing up and how you think it influenced perhaps how you ended up in this relationship, but more so why at the time you felt it was okay? I absolutely can. And looking back, my mom suffers from severe mental health crises, and this is a multi-generational trauma. She's a a first-generation immigrant to this country. I, I took a lot of pride in that fact, but the issue at hand was she experienced a lot of trauma in her youth and never really effectively was able to get help for that, which then set up the coursework for herself to suffer from bipolar disorder. My dad didn't know how to effectively manage that, manage his you know, starting his own business and maintain a healthy and happy household. So during my childhood in particular, my extended family was, you know, there's a lot of individuals. I had my grandmother that lived with us for a short period of time that passed away basically right in front of my eyes. A lot of family and cousins were constantly in trouble with the law. I always felt in those circumstances alone, neglected. That was my biggest battle was trying to figure out and be able to be seen by my family to be, you know, recognized as an individual there. And that was very rarely the case because everybody was tuned out, high or drunk or partying and carrying on or was in a major manic episode or depressive episode to the point where it was absolutely just insane to try to deal with anything. My father was kind of absent and trying to figure out everything with his career and life and dealing with my mom. And my mom was absent most of the time as well for either working nights or trying to manage her issues that led into my teenage years of vacillating between different households and basically continuing to be self-isolating and alone or seeking out some kind of coping strategy, you know, whether it be food, alcohol, party, or anything along those lines, or trying to push myself in the scholastic endeavors. But School was like kind of one of the only places that I actually found some solace from everything. Who were your um, role models growing up? My biggest role model growing up was actually uh, Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek The Next Generation. When after school, I would find myself finishing coursework early and just doing all the work in school to be able to basically disassociate and disappear into my, my room or you know walk around the town. When I was at home, I would end up watching Star Trek The Next Generation, and the wisdom imparted from Jean-Luc Picard was like, that's the man that I want to be. That, that's the man that is inspiring me. You know, he was my idol, that character on this television show. You're self-isolating, so I'm assuming that means you're kind of holding everything in. Yes, and directing all anger towards myself. Did you ever try to hurt yourself? Yes. When I was 13, I ended up putting a a loaded shotgun into my mouth. I've I've suffered some other suicidal ideation and bouts where I've done similar types of behaviors, but I always ended up thinking, I'm going to leave a mess if I do this. I don't want to leave a mess. I shame myself into not pulling the trigger in a lot of those circumstances. I don't want to be a burden to anybody. I just wanted to disappear, to not to not feel anything internally and not hold that in. Thank you for sharing that. You told us about what she said in the car about possibly burning down this house with people inside. Was there any part of you that was like, 
oh my gosh, do I need to go to the law? Like, did she commit a crime? Like, what do I need to do with this? There definitely was. But the thing is, when you grow up in that kind of environment, the the law is generally seen as the enemy, for lack of a better word. You have a deep and sincere mistrust of policing and you know that type of outreach and doing something like that you you don't want to do that you're essentially brought up in the streets to think you know the police are the enemy they're against you you know when you watch people get arrested and you know the sheriff comes in and repossesses cars and things along those lines you formulate from a young perspective you know not a nuanced perspective that that person's the enemy you know they're taking away mom's car you know it's not mom can't pay her bills because she's going through a you know severe psychological issue you know it's the, the cop is coming to just take the car from her kind of thing or that's one example can you describe her personality at that time in your relationship my ex-wife at the time she seemed incredibly sweet and nice to me I, I would be going above and beyond, cooking all the meals, taking care of everything in the household, still working full time at this point, trying to you know make a career and continue to grow myself. And she had a job too. And she would really be appreciative and shower me with compliments, try to give me gifts. And you know, you're incredibly amazing and everything like that. And it was a such a huge and unusual thing for myself that it was I. You know, I'm receiving all these compliments, all this affection, and it's very different. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't also feel right at the same time. Yeah, they say, you know, there is good times and bad times. And the bad times is where we really want to kind of remember those really extra special times. But I know that the bad times can be really bad. Can you share with us a time or two where it was really bad? Yeah. The regular course of events would be working in the city, coming home from you know an hour-long commute, trying to be able to put food on the table and coming in and cooking and cleaning. And then I would be chastised because I didn't do the dishes before going into work. Meanwhile, she's working from home a lot of the time and just, you know, the dishes are piling up. And then I am cooking the dinner for that night with no help, doing all the dishes from the day prior and from her day during the work day. And then I would be not doing things good enough. You know, there's like a particular instance where I actually really do enjoy cooking. It's somewhat of a passion of mine. There's one time where I have a day off and I'm sitting outside grilling, you know, having a couple beers, just enjoying the day, cooking a whole bunch of food on the grill just so we have, you know, meal prep for the entire week, the next couple of weeks. Something that I'm really proud of was this pork loin that I was cooking. And I really wanted the end of that pork loin, you know, just the burnt end of it. And I'm talking with her and she grabs the knife and basically tries to stab me with the knife at that moment to, you know, make sure she can get it for herself. Wow. And that was, that was like one particular instance where things started getting kind of more and more violent with her. How did you process that to where you stayed? After the initial honeymoon phase of our relationship, the verbal assaults, the diatribes, the downplays and put downs and consistent and constant yelling and screaming. And I just became numb to it almost. I just started accepting that this is going to be my life. This is, you know, I hope things will change. I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping things are going to change. I just started tuning everything out and really just uh, embracing the suck, so to speak. Did you ever fall into the, uh, well, this is better than nothing 
absolutely. Those times were enough to keep me going and then think like, you know, maybe one day we will, as we get out of this poverty trap and continue to increase our skills and, you know, get stronger and more stable careers that one day we'll have the time to really work on and address these issues. Was there ever manipulation where it was positioned as, well, say, for example, if you don't trust me, I'm going to leave. She was like, okay, if you just don't do this and I'm just going to leave you. All the time. That was one of her go-tos in a lot of like discussions where she would be shouting at me and I'd be trying to calmly explain my feelings. And she'd be like, I can take everything that I have and throw it into a backpack and leave. That was like one of her go-to MOs for our discussions and arguments where, you know, she's getting really heated and she's like, okay, I'm just going to leave kind of thing and disappear. And I can do that at any moment that I want to. A little while ago, you talked about kind of the verbal abuse that starts and then, you know, it, it escalates from there. Can you share some particular things that were said? For me, in my experience, oh, a lot of the words that were utilized would be more along the lines of character assassinations and, oh, you're worthless or, or you're incapable or, you know, you're no good. The one thing that would really jump out to me would be, you know, if you feel anytime you try to communicate about an issue that you have to dance around like you're walking on eggshells and you can't bring up any particular feelings that you're having in a relationship because you're fearing that they're going to yell at you or they're going to break some kind of glassware or do some kind of other aggressive act towards you, like slamming doors and shouting at you. When you do bring up issues or try to talk about your feelings in a circumstance and they start downplaying you and calling you worthless or calling you pitiful or saying you can't have those feelings, you know, and start reacting in a crazy and extreme way, you know, you're, you're definitely well along the path of being in a, a damaging and abusive relationship. You really need to be paying attention to that inner voice that's just trying to reach out about those issues. Um, may I ask how the sexual side of things were? Because sometimes that also ends up being like a bargaining chip in that type of relationship. Yeah. Uh, the sexual intimacy in our relationship was... I've always felt highly performative on my part. You'll hear this a lot from other men that have experienced something similar where they feel like they're constantly on a performance for their partner, never really receiving anything in return. You found I found myself constantly in a circumstance where I was always giving and never receiving in the relationship sexually. It was not reciprocated whatsoever. And it was almost to perform. And when I wasn't able to, or I was in a really shocked emotional state or, you know, really downtrodden and I couldn't perform, then I was derided and chastised in those circumstances because, you know, then it's, she's viewing it as a somewhat of a sense of abandonment where it's like, oh, you're no longer attracted to me anymore. You know, what am I fat? Kind of thing like that. Does she ever cheat or anything? Was that any part of your relationship? It was, yes. We'd go out and she would end up like making out with another woman. There was an instance where she did cheat on me with another woman while we were long distance. And it was always the other person's fault. There was no fault on her part whatsoever. They just kissed me, kind of thing like that. Or they just, you know, came up to me and grabbed me. And it's like uh, later on, she would eventually, you know, be like, 
Oh, no, it was definitely something more mutual. How did that make you feel? In the classical sense, I wanted to try to be there and be closer. But at the same time, I guess the right word would be disgruntled as well, you know, in that circumstance. It's it's such a hard thing to try to pin the right word to. You know, you feel angry, but you also feel... Like betrayed? Right. I know I am not totally to be completely absolved of blame. The trust issues on her part were also almost way out of proportion for, you know, my actions. I had never cheated on her. I never did anything along those lines to really warrant any kind of major trust and violation issues along those lines. A lot of times it becomes physical. Did that happen? Yes. During that time, as things continued to escalate, my work performance somewhat started to suffer. And I continued to pursue more and more alcohol as a coping strategy, getting to the point where I started home brewing to be able to have ready and steady supply of alcohol without having to go to the liquor store. I got enrolled into counseling through my employment. As I talked with my counselor, I started trying to unravel the circumstances and everything like that and explain what was going on in my household to that counselor. The counselor was like, okay, well, you need to be prepared for the escalation of violence. A bug out bag is if you need to bug out, you know, if you need to escape, that backpack would, you know, eventually when things got really violent would end up being the thing that saved my skin in a lot of ways beyond, you know, involving myself with the police. So things progress and things get more and more verbally and violent and physically abusive. And I'm being hit regularly and slapped put down. I'm, I'm a six foot one guy and at that time, 350 pounds. And she was a five foot five woman at like 275 pounds. It's got worse and worse. Uh, I'm going out to take care of the errands for the household and go pick up more alcohol and stuff like that. And I'm coming back in and she had been day drinking off the stuff that was still in the house and waiting for me as soon as I come home, essentially. And at the behest of my therapist, I had been storing my firearms and documents in my gun cabinet and ammunition there as well. And I had maintained access to the keys and she starts demanding the keys for the gun cabinet. If you don't give me the effing keys, I'm going to break the effing lock off the gun cabinet. I'm not doing it justice for the way this was expressed to me, but you know, it, it looked like there was death in her eyes and she grabs this six pound sledgehammer that I had in the house and is basically staring me down, demanding the keys, and the only words that are coming to my mouth are just no. And I'm slowly backing away from this person holding this sledgehammer, keeping my eyes on her over my shoulder, grabbing my rain jacket, grabbing my bag, and putting my shoes on as she's screaming at me at the top of her lungs. And I just continue to step backwards and walk outside. At this point, I'm shaking. I hear her start hammering on the gun cabinet to get access to the firearms. And I need to get police involved because if she gets through that thin little one-eighth sheet metal, you know, she's coming for me with the loaded AR or something like that. So, Yeah, it's like the scene from a horror movie, right? For you, this was, this was real life. Right. And for me, even being comfortable enough to even call the police at that moment was just, uh, I didn't know what to do. I was almost stricken with shock and fear at that moment. You know, I'm sure the recording with the police and, and that rainy... April evening, I should say, would be a, a very interesting thing. Was there something that triggered her that day? 
you know, she wasn't getting her way with wanting to completely remove herself from this area and moving down south, you know, would have basically been just her and I completely self-isolated and I wasn't ready to do that. So I think that might have been the one thing that really was triggering her at that moment. So you made a phone call to the police department. Can you tell us what happened next? I'm I'm standing outside in the pouring rain, listening to her pounding away at the gun cabinet. I'm explaining to the police that my partner is trying to break into the gun cabinet where there's loaded weapons and ammunition in there. I don't know what she's planning on doing. And they're basically like, okay, you need to get away from the house and try to find somewhere secure. I ended up just basically walking across the street, sitting behind an electric transformer box. They show up about three minutes later, locked and loaded. They start trying to take command and control of the situation there and get me established in the back of the squad car as they have their weapons drawn and are trying to get her to come out of the house by calling her cell phone. They eventually do get through to her and they handcuff her and essentially de-escalate the situation from that point. I can't imagine what must be going through your head as you're sitting in the back of the vehicle. Can you tell us about that? After handcuffing her and discussing everything, they, they separate the parties essentially and they take her inside to try to get her perspective on the story because at that point, you know, they've only heard my perspective because I'm the one calling the police. She was a very, very good charmer ability with a way, with a way to talk herself out of a, a lot of situations. Basically, it comes down to the story that they're, you know, putting together was that they think it's some kind of just heated discussion and they just want to separate everybody. Essentially, what they say is, you know, get the firearms out of the house and go find somewhere else to go. So I get my documents, my firearms out of the gun cabinet just trying to see where I can go on this rainy night. And thankfully, somebody finally picks up and I have a couch to go to. At that moment, that was the end of the situation. There was no discussion about you know protections from abuse orders or anything along those lines. There's no discussion of shelters. It's all just assumed that you know I'll be able to figure it out. You know, it's just a heated discussion. You know, they're both guilty parties. And what actually happened? From my perspective, you know, I'm the one sitting there completely shaken, disheveled, broken down, the one that's called the police and trying to ascertain help. You can see that I'm panic stricken on my face. And the sergeant in charge was, you know, very friendly. And, you know, he was basically the one shepherding me through, getting me into my car and getting me out of that situation. I think there's a lot of different observations that could have been taken place from the circumstances at B. You know, I know their job is to just de-escalate the situation as quickly as possible to prevent any kind of violence from happening. So, I feel though at that time you probably really would have benefited from some resources. Did you feel that way? I am uh, sitting there in the rain in, in my car. Just what's going to happen? You know, what, what's going to what is going on? You know, I'm still I'm still just trying to recognize and process everything that transpired at that moment. There was no opportunity, no offering of any resources whatsoever. There was, you know, like I said, no mention for, you know, this is who you need to contact for domestic abuse situations or this is where you can go. Sharing your story is so important because it brings awareness, reminds us of how perhaps we need to handle situations, how better we can handle situations and provide resources. But there isn't quite as many resources, shelters available to men. There's always room for learning and growing 
and improving our systems, our resources. And I'm hoping that today your story will help to shed some light on that uh, as well, that we need it. We need it. But thank you for sharing. I really hope that does help to be the case. And people do understand that that circumstance that does exist for not even just heterosexual couples where the stereotype that's been portrayed that the male is always the violent aggressor is not the case and not the case even remotely the majority of the time that people think it is. I believe you in that. I think, and this is my opinion, the numbers are unreported for male victims because of the stigma. They're too afraid to come forward because how will it look? What if I'm not believed? So it's a little bit harder for them. It's already hard to come forward. I would absolutely agree that the the toxic masculinity that prevents a lot of men from coming forward about those particular issues. And I know for myself, I was really reluctant as things progressed to even be willing and comfortable to share this kind of thing. But as time has gone on and I've worked on healing myself in a really substantive way, it became important to be able to get out there and at least bring awareness to the circumstance that exists for a lot of men, even though they keep it silent. Absolutely. Did you see your ex-wife at all after that or were, were you done? After that particular moment, she tried to contact me for the next month, blowing up my phone with text messages and phone calls. And then I eventually did not see her until the final hearing date, which was intentionally drug out by her and her counsel, at least from my counsel and myself's perspective, a divorce that took 18 months. Wow, that's a long time. On what grounds was she able to keep dragging that out? They would wait till the absolute last day for filing of the documents, and then they would file incorrect or incomplete documents, and then that would reset the clock entirely. Through my employment, I had been granted a promotion, but it hadn't taken effect yet, and they utilized that as well as a way to ascertain more money because I was the higher-earning spouse at the time. So like, it turned into this whole game of how can we extract the most amount of money from that circumstance as possible. You just got done telling me a little bit about your healing, and I think healing is part of your success story. My healing process, it's been a multi-pronged approach since then, you know, trying to go through with therapy provided by a domestic violence shelter, which I eventually did ascertain access to after some difficulty in talking with them. When I had originally called the helpline, I got redirected to the batterer's line in the nearby in Philadelphia. And the individual on the other end of the line at the batterer's line recognized that I was in crisis and called back with me on the line and basically said, this guy needs help. And this was the, the morning after everything. That really amplified the process that I was going through with my work counseling to have that other stream of counseling and therapy. And then I got involved with group therapy there at the domestic violence providers. That really helped to lay the groundwork for healing and establishing a healthy self-esteem and a healthy perspective and outlook on life and trying to really find a meaning out of both my childhood and also from ex-partner. I went through a increasingly progressive binge drinking episode basically the entire eight months after everything was a, a whirlwind tour de force of how much alcohol could I consume to deal with everything. After Christmas where I'm that year, I'm having some kind of suicidal ideation again. Some people, I've been also simultaneously working on reestablishing connections with friends and family. And 
some friends and family recognized that I was kind of in crisis at that moment, and they really tried to get me out of my head. Another friend challenged me to a, a 10-mile run around Fairmount Park in Philadelphia. Mind you, I'm, I'm 345 pounds and binge drinking alcoholic at that point. I make it about eight miles and then basically collapse. That's great. I can't do that. I'm, I'm, yeah, eight miles, no. That's great. Congratulations. Yeah, but that uh, that leads into a, a cataclysmic shift of I can't keep falling through with drinking and binge eating and binge drinking and living this terrible life to heal myself, quote unquote. I have to do something different. You know, what happens is the pandemic happens right then and there. Basically, two months later, I had basically looked at that run and I said, okay, well, I'm going to run a half marathon. And in doing so, and trying to achieve that goal, that really changed my entire perspective on healing and processing and dealing with everything and continuing to go to therapy while managing everything. And I go through that process. I eventually run that half marathon and I continue to set more and more goals, keep giving myself more meaning. I continue to lose weight. I cut back on the alcohol. I continue to go into therapy. I continue self-therapizing in conjunction with you know taking the material that my therapists are providing me and working on it independently while still working and maintaining that job. And I ended up you know, coming out of everything in 70 pounds, I'm now over 300 days sober, coming up on a full year of sobriety. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Work recognized that I was actually very capable, you know, once I wasn't, you know, destroying myself. And uh, they offered me an opportunity to go abroad for work during the pandemic and, you know, providing the vaccine abroad. And that was a, a incredible opportunity there, too. I've now run multiple marathons. I just ran the Philadelphia Marathon a couple of weeks ago, and I am uh, run thousands of miles across three different continents. That's great. And you know, therapy can be really hard to go to, um, and it takes work. But obviously, you did it. Can you give them some words of encouragement? Yeah, absolutely. Therapy at the outset, can seem incredibly daunting. You're sitting across from this stranger who's looking at you, observing you, taking notes, and you might be in a state of complete mental dysregulation, complete mental shock, or in a lot of pain, or you don't really know what you're feeling. You might be completely numb. I know I experienced all those different emotions when I was first going to my initial counseling sessions, and I'm like, who is this stranger? What are they trying to do? How's this going to affect me down the line? You know, how is talking openly with a stranger going to really help me? You know, I had that really doubting perspective early on. They started to really allow me to open up in more and more ways. They asked questions that would, I never really even thought to ask. And that provided me an outlet to be more and more open with them. And as that progressed, you keep the distance. They're still a stranger, but they are an unbiased stranger. They're there to support you. You know, they're there to be there for you as a person trying to get better. At some point, it just it flips and it becomes just this incredible relationship where the therapist is there to help you and providing you with a tool set, getting that tool set to be able to work on everything and find that voice inside myself and to have a better life was incredibly valuable. What advice can you give to friends witnessing someone who they suspect is being abused? 
the number one piece of advice that I can give is do not interject yourself into the dynamic. What you need to do in that circumstance, from my perspective and from what I've heard from many other individuals who have been through similar types of trauma or worse, is the moment you interject yourself as a friend into that circumstance, try to get between the abuser and the abused, is that that abuser will utilize you as an example that you know other people are to not be trusted. Essentially, and unfortunately, you know, this sounds counterintuitive, but you have to be supportive of that, of your friend, be there for that friend or family member, but you can't intervene unless it's a, a major moment of, you know, severe danger and damage to that individual's personhood. If that person's being chastised, being, you know, brought down by their partner and they want to come and talk to you about it, they want to vent to you about it, they want to, they see you as somebody that's safe that they can talk with. You know, you just have to let them come to you and talk to you. You can't bring down their abusive partner. You can't, you know, chastise the abusive partner or the person that's coming to you for that help. You have to just be there to support them. Absolutely. And sometimes that's hard being on the outside looking in. We are going to look forward. I love that you have been 300 days sober. You've run miles across me. Like <laughs> My knees, my feet, everything hurts just thinking about how much you have run, but I'm proud of you. I think that that's great. I love that you took this challenging, difficult, traumatic, emotional situation and turned it into something positive and healthy. I think healthy is a really important word for you considering the emotional, the physical, the the drinking, the partying environment that you started out with at an early age and to see where you are today. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? I, I see somebody that's happy to be alive, is able to smile at himself for the first time in you know, my entire life and is ready to take on new challenges and help people along the way. That's what I see when I look in the mirror now, Jen. I'm so happy for you. Do you have any uh, last words of advice or thoughts? The, the floor is yours. The, the last thing that comes to mind is that the National Domestic Violence Hotline is an incredible resource that they have chat functions where the browser self-deletes when you are inactive for a certain amount of time. And they're unbiased, they're fairly well-trained, and they can help you connect with local resources. Just an absolute treasure of a service. And I know when I was originally questioning things and questioning what my work-appointed therapist was providing to me, I ended up chatting with them for a little bit. And they're like, I'm hearing and seeing a lot of markers that are you know, reflective of being in an abusive situation. And, you know, we're here to support you. If you need to disappear, shut the phone off or whatever, you know, schedule a call where you're completely isolated. We can help you in any kind of way. That was an absolute treasure of a resource. Again, that's 800-799-7233. They're an absolutely incredible resource. And the second piece is don't be afraid to contact your local community. The local police are there to help and support you. And if you ever feel like you're unsafe or you're potentially walking into a ticking time bomb coming home from work or anything like that, and the police have a non-emergency service line for most of the local departments, and they will 
you know, send a car out generally to come help you in those circumstances. And also on my website, uh, www.imeblue.net, there's a get help tab and it has all of the national hotlines um, there as well for resources. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jen, for allowing me to, you know, help spread the message and take part in this and help get some of this more off of my chest as well. Absolutely. Anytime. You have my email, whatever, whatever you need. I'm here. Okay. I appreciate that. And if you need a, a second hosting or a second you know, guest spot again or anything like that, I'd be more than glad to help you in that endeavor as well. I would love to talk about why we don't listen to our instincts. I that would be uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's another day because I think we might be able to talk about that for a while. <laughs> that, that might be a that might be a two hour conversation that one. But it's definitely worth contemplating. So we'll, we'll have further conversation about that. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you, Jen. Thank you for joining us today. I Need Blue can be found at www.ineedblue.net as well as on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Sharing one of the stories uh, with a friend or a family member may just be the way to start a much needed conversation. If you have a story you would like to share on I Need Blue, visit ineedblue.net and click submit your story. Thank you for your support your support and remember you are stronger than you think.